Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we are discussing Season 1, Episode 5, entitled 5G. It was written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Leslie Gladder. This episode originally aired on August 16th, 2007. The hit movies that week, um, Superbad opened number one at the box office and in my heart that weekend. <laughs> um, Rush Hour 3 came in second and The Bourne Ultimatum in the third spot. That weekend's other new movies starring Daniel <laughs> Craig and Nicole Kidman. And no, it wasn't The Golden Compass. It was The Invasion and it opened oh. in fifth place. Truly a movie that does not exist. <laughs> I forgot about that movie. I've never heard of it. <laughs> I I no haven't heard of it either. I assume it's about aliens. I vaguely remember hearing about it. That's about it. Yeah, no idea. Um, but speaking of other things that may or may not exist, the hit song that week was still Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston. <laughs> this is how I know this is the year I stopped paying attention to music that was like popular because I really have no recollection of this. I was like TRL from like 13 through high school at this time. <laughs> So not to date the uh, recording too much of of when we're recording here, but I saw the film Hustlers recently, of which the song Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston appears in it, as it is a period piece <laughs> at times. And I thought back to our episode we recorded last week when I said I hadn't thought about that song in a long time and no one else had. Well, it's in hopefully what has proven to be a hit film. that will be an Oscar-winning film, hopefully. Fingers crossed for Jennifer Lopez. So... Yeah, that's a thing. Can't wait to see it. Go see Hustlers. And like 15 years later, Booksmart comes out, supposedly like the female super bad with Jonah Hill's younger sister in the lead. Big fan of that one, too. How far we've come in so little time. No kidding. So, Mad Men, episode 5, the episode 5G, in which Don's past catches up with him. Pete tries to coerce and manipulate his way into the literary world, and Peggy is trapped by the way men live both private and public lives. What an episode. Yep. I feel like, okay, so let me just jump in here, rather annoyingly. Uh, in the past, we've had episode titles um, that have had more of like a, a reference to something else, unrelated, not necessarily related to the show. This one is something that references something within the show, kind of. What um, What do you think the title tells us about this episode, guys? Well, this is just a quick on-brand comment, not an answer to your question. Um, 5G is the next phase of cellular equipment evolution. <laughs> I thought that too. <laughs> so that's something that I read and think about a lot during the day at my uh, real job. <laughs> so when I saw that was the name of this episode, I was like, huh, there's no possible way that this is connected. <laughs> that's so interesting. Well, and like 5G, 5G comes up a couple different times in the episode. It's, it's, it's both money and then the, I guess apartment hotel that one of the characters we meet in this episode lives in so it, it's both a state of being or or a gateway to something or a doorway to something it's like a phase or something that moves you beyond a phase maybe i don't know it's all encompassing of that 
I mean, we don't have to be wary of spoilers. We're going to talk about the whole episode. Everyone hopefully probably watched it. It it starts and ends all of that Adam stuff. Yeah. Um, My mind blew when you were like, oh, it's the, you know, amount, 5Gs. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I'm thinking uh, just while listening to you guys talk, it also made me think of like, um, you know, when they're talking about jet fighter, uh, like fighter jets and stuff going at certain speeds and G force is like a unit of gravitational pull, I guess is how you want to say. So like something is going so fast, you know, it's like five G. So it's like five times the gravitational force of uh, the earth. So it's just like maybe just things pulling together and being drawn to each other. You've got uh, a long lost brother who finds his brother who's supposed to be dead. You have, um, secrets revealed and and some things that just can't just can't be kept apart no that that's interesting because you, that you mentioned gravity which is something that kind of grounds us or holds us down and kind of prevents us from from flying or makes flying and, and motion or forward motion difficult because like even you know exercising or, or jogging or whatever can be difficult to propel yourself forward because of gravity so that's that's really interesting yeah well i didn't think i was gonna get that much out of uh, a letter and a number but i'm glad that we went there why don't we start with our favorite boy pete in this episode (laughs) you say you don't hate somebody one time and it comes back to bite you (laughs) Uh, one, one, I was gonna say one day we won't dislike Pete. That day's already come and gone. We're back to normal. Remember <laughs> Pete's only day of not being hated? Yeah, it was last week. And that was just because he got fired, not fired, right? So. Fired, not fired, and his parents are terrible, but so are a lot of people's. <laughs> yeah, it's no excuse for your bad behavior, Peter. Um, before we really dig in to Pete himself, um... I do want to talk a little bit about, I'm going to try to refrain from calling them the Hitler Youth, even though I love that. (laughs) Cosgrove does have a bit of a Hitler Youth kind of haircut, in fairness. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, Kim Cosgrove and Paul Kinsey, I thought that they, you know, as always, they're playing pretty small roles in this episode, but I thought both of them were really interesting. Um... And, you know, in fear of having this happen again, uh, do I like Ken Cosgrove now? <laughs> Uh-oh. I know. Let's it's be cautious da- here. I know. It's dangerous territory. Um, I, you know, I obviously haven't forgotten how trash he is, um, but him just acting so excited and, like, not even a little bit embarrassed about how excited he was about this getting published thing was quite endearing and he just wanted to tell everyone about his book and like that just reads like a little nerdy to me and I kind of liked it even though he is at heart very trash (laughs) no I completely agree he's there was something really like genuine about him and his his um you know explaining what happened and while after a while you're like yeah you're telling this story for the eighth million time to all the women yeah <laughs> it felt very true to whoever he must be inside like it wasn't showy it wasn't um performative like when he's super gross and you feel like he's really putting mm. something on it was just like hey guys i did a thing and i know it's good and someone else thought it's good too 
and maybe you'd like to know about it. It was super sweet and weird, but you're like, okay, I don't totally hate the sight of you now. No, and what's what's super interesting about that is they mentioned that how Ken didn't mention that he even was was an aspiring author or aspiring writer until he had the finished product published in Atlantic Monthly, and how that ties into that this part of Paul or not Paul, excuse me, Ken was was something that was private and intimate to him. That now that he's reached this achievement level of, of this this status level, that now it can become part of the public because it's out there for the world, but it's something that has kind of been inside him and he's working on. He's written a short story. He has two no- novels that he he mentions when when Paul asks him about it later and it's like a little bit of that that play which is kind of the theme throughout the episode of the dichotomy between what people, primarily men, um in this context keep to themselves what what's their interior life and then what are the aspects of their exterior life. So, yeah, no little Absolutely. windows into Ken. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that, like, he was probably super, felt super vulnerable about. I mean, two novels, one novel takes time to write, let alone two, and then a short story. Probably not his only one, because he said, it's normally not my strong suit. So it was kind of, um, it was nice to see him uh, really take pride in it. And how it paid off, because you have Don, who's who does not give out his praise, his genuine praise and admiration easily. And Roger certainly doesn't either. And the two of them are like, no, it's not my thing. This is very cool. I look forward to hearing more of it. And oh, you can see Pete pouting in the background. Oh, yeah. Um, Paul, when he hears about the plot of Ken's books, he says, oh, that doesn't even sound stupid. Like, he's <laughs> genuinely shocked. <laughs> And it made me think of this thing um, that I recently learned from Black Sales because I've been watching that, and that is the benefit that you can reap from being underestimated by the people around you. And it is kind of um, touched upon in this episode the way that this accounts team, um, we've said this before, they all... If one of them succeeds, they all succeed and vice versa. So for them to underestimate Ken and for him to not even seem to be competing with them in this in this arena of advertising and then to come out with this win, I think just really uh, reiterates that they're like, yeah, don't you know, don't show your hand. There is a benefit to people not knowing all of your strengths. And that comes back again when Paul apologizes to Ken with like this backhanded compliment saying, I didn't realize that I was competing with you too. And Ken just says, you know, you lost, like you weren't paying attention to me. That's on you. Yeah, no, there's definitely something there with them. um, Probably all thinking that they were accepting their mediocrity together Mm -hmm. and that they were just going to be in the trenches and that kind of thing. So that must've been super startling. But um, it strikes me that this being underestimated thing, it is something that does tend to be, and maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, does tend to be something I see more in women, just accepting Mm. when someone goes, no, I'm not going to expect more from you right now. And then still working and striving and doing a thing just because it matters a lot to them. When otherwise, in every other aspect of the show where the men are working together on their jobs, it's very showy and self-aggrandizing and talking about how 
great they are and how many women they're sleeping with and all this stuff. And he's just like, no, this is like my real thing. And you have all these other, you know, we have an office full of women who are just putting their heads down and doing their thing and accepting all the gross stuff that comes, uh, you know, comes their way as just a part of it. I mean, and we even see, um, well, we saw last week when Pete actually tried to compete you know, above board within this little group and ended up getting himself fired. So we know what happens when you try to break away in this competition or little group that they have going on here. Um, and even though Pete is not directly pushing against Don anymore, but there's that moment when he still can't help himself but to remind Don that he is still included in this advertising group because he makes a comment when they're leaving the office, oh, accounts won the award. Like, don't forget. Uh-huh. Like, I'm part of that award that you won. You might be getting all the praise, but accounts won the award, and I'm part of accounts, so therefore I also won the award, but I'm going to leave now. Please don't fire me. <laughs> he just can't accept that. He can't just, like, be okay with his own personal achievements. If someone else is doing better, obviously, then he's doing worse. It's very tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, and I mean, maybe it's for reasons that we talked about kind of last week and family of origin stuff and expectation and everything else. And I think that all of the uh, Sterling Cooper mid-level executive frat pack suffers from this a little bit, but Pete perhaps more so than others, this like sense of kind of like they're so fragile and that they're a, one, a success of someone. So Ken's success with the novel is deemed as a fail. Paul deems it as a failure for him. Even Peter, who we've never seen, like have any inclination into, you know, literary pursuits necessarily. I mean, Paul, it kind of tracks with who we, we found out him to be and in episode two and how he's dressed a little bit more kind of academic than the rest of the other ones at times. I mean, look at that pipe, right? Um, but Ken's success is deemed as a, f- a personal failure or a slight of everyone else. And then it's like that tracks in with Pete and that tall poppy syndrome that you were just talking about where Again, if if I need to achieve, I need to reach a certain level for whatever my good or not so good reasons are. And if anyone achieves above me, I'm not included in that reflects poorly on me. Yeah, no, this is certainly a situation where it says much more about everyone reacting to his success than it says about Ken Cosgrove. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you have Pete, who not only can't accept the fact that someone is doing so much better than he is in a completely separate field from this whole thing, from, uh, that is the advertising world, something that he was basing so much of his identity on, something that he assumed other people were too. But surprise, some of them have some complexity and other interests. Now he wants to be like this deep, complex, artistic person with integrity. Eh. So he forces his wife to basically prostitute herself out to get himself published. How do we feel about Pete? I am back to just all caps in my notes. Pete, you are the worst. Um, He has reclaimed his throne. Yeah, and just for one, shout out. Um, your wife and truly no woman or any human being that you come in contact with 
needs to make up for or apologize for having a life before they knew you, before they owed anything to you. Like, so gross. Because we start, we know that Pete certainly hasn't been abstaining up until now either. Yeah, and like, to be honest, Trudy didn't even need to tell Pete who her first was or anything about her life before they got together. But she did, and I have to assume that she did that in a moment of vulnerability and in a moment where they, you know, shared secrets and became closer probably during the time when they were falling in love. And, like, that's not something you just tell someone lightly especially in this time period in those relationship dynamics and then for him to use that against her is just one of the grossest things we've seen him do yeah no i completely agree the way he like holds it over her for that he's he's using his anger and her guilt to manipulate her with that and then later on he, you know, when they're talking over dinner and she says, you know, how could you put me in that position? And he just says, uh, what does he say? He says, you don't want me to have what I want. And you're like, that's gross. Go get like what you want on your level. own merit. Like, it, it's ugh. like, it, but being published doesn't even matter that much to him either. Right. You and that's what he wants to do that for. No, it's all pride and ego. And once again, him relying on Trudy to get him out of it and then probably use it as ammunition against her later on. The level of manipulation and coercion that Peter performs in this episode is like on a whole different level than what we've seen him do to date. And the way that like... The vulnerability that Trudy again shows when she's like, well, no, like, I don't want to talk to my ex-boyfriend. I remember I told you he was my first, my first partner. Um, and remember, and, and she says, I'm paraphrasing, can't remember the exact line. Um, but she's like, well, remember how mad you were when I, when I told you? And then he's just like, oh, well, like, and he's like, he's not mad anymore. Probably wasn't actually that mad. Right. Like at the time, is he thought he he should be, and he could get something out of it. Now he can get something different, and he's not mad. And he says, "Oh," she's like, "Well, you were mad." He's like, "Yeah, I guess I was." But this is your way to make up for it, and it's like, screw off, buddy. Like, like it's just it's gross. It it's just this whole this whole other level of like it's still. Like, it tracks because, like, Peter's, like, looking out for himself and getting what he wants and wants to get what he wants. And whether that's a reaction to family of origin stuff or his own, like, brokenness or, like, whatever, like, fine. But, like, that's an active choice he's making that is just, it's, it's manipulative and it's coercive and it's not good. Not good at all. Do you think this is something that is somewhat true to life in some situations something that still occurs something that you may have witnessed personally oh 100 percent. and i and i think and i i know we've we've talked about this or at least because i know I've, you and i have talked about this kind of off pod but like it, it's not that that coerciveness to get what they the coerciveness of men to get what they want from their their partners um it, it can be a lot more subtle and more microaggression than necessarily in this episode. Like it, 
I clearly remember the moment in my past and kind of, you know, 10-ish years ago or whatever it was, when, like, the light bulb switch finally, like, clicked for me. Where I was like, wait, I bully and coerce, like, what... Well, remember when you used to rent movies? Um, but, you, like, you go to the... Or, or what to watch on Netflix, or I guess would be the equivalent now. But, like, you'd go there with, like, your partner or your friends or whomever, like, you're with. And it's like, you know what you want to watch. You know what you're in the mood for. And you have another person there, your your partner, who might be in the mood for something different. But you can coerce those those choices and be like oh i don't know well what about this and it's like well no matt i want to watch i don't know i want to watch the golden compass so just because we talked about that before it's like well no i'm more in the mood for well fight club like, yeah well, okay not fight club then um i'm more in the mood for dirty dancing well whatever that's a good movie um and like you can manipulate through the conversation where like you kind of take away that that agency or that choice and make your partner acquiesce to what you want to get what you want so i think that's definitely a pattern i've seen um one that in times where things like with this movie example i know i've unfortunately actively participated in so i think it's it's something that well may not always be as kind of obviously gross and, and unseemly as as we see in this episode i think it's a pattern that's repeated a lot in society across a myriad of of different arenas and and relationships and things like that well not only that but like this asking trudy to do this for you just so you can not even one up but be equal to what i'm considering a not even real rival like this is not a real rivalry you guys are on a team right um it's a betrayal because, and, you know, Trudy didn't want to do this in the first place. She made it a point to say, like, we are not going to lunch. Like, this is very professional. And then we see the way Charlie Finish behaves towards her. And I'm sure she knew something like this was going to happen. She didn't want to have to put herself in this position. And, you know, she, she expressed disdain at this idea to begin with. So... You know, it's so much more than like what you said, just like, a you know, a microaggression or just like a small manipulation, which, you know, obviously any manipulations are bad manipulations. And I truly believe that. But this right. one is so ugly. So gross. He just serves her up into this very predatory situation. And then she had to listen to someone say that they wouldn't want her when she was old. Like, fuck <laughs> all of you. I hear that so much. I don't want you when we're old. I just want to be with you, even if it's not more than that. And I want you now while you're still hot. But, like, also shout out Trudy, because she was like, when I'm old, maybe I'll be sick of fucking Pete. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he'll be dead if we're really lucky. No, I... Trudy is such a freaking badass. Um... In her part I truly believe, yeah, I didn't want to interrupt you. No, it's fine. Excited. Just <laughs> feel free as in, to be as enthusiastic as you want about Trudy, because she's so amazing. Unlike all the other women in the show, I don't think it puts her in like this weird idealized kind of way, because she definitely has her own weaknesses and everything too, namely Pete. But she has this assuredness about her own, how she should be treated and what she is definitely too good for, you know, she says to him, how could you, how could you put me in that position? She tells Charlie, no, 
that's not what's going to happen. I made a commitment. This is not going to go the way you want it to. And so even though, like, this boy's life is super what Pete deserves at best, and it's pretty embarrassing, uh, she's just, like... And has to pay for it. (laughs) And has to pay for it. It's like, no, that's that's as much as I'm willing to give you. And I love that she said, like, I could have gotten you whatever, whatever newspaper, but, like, I love that she told him, like... Yeah, there are lines I am not... There are personal lines and personal boundaries I am not willing to cross, even for you. Not that he... Not that Pete cares. Not that Pete cares. He couldn't give a shit. His pride is more important right now. Oh, but if Pete found out how he got published after the fact, I bet he'd care then. Yeah. I'm sure he knew. No, so. I got that impression. He was just like, "Mm, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But before we... One final thought, I guess, before we move on. I have since identified that pattern, and I am doing the work, and I don't bully movie choices (laughs) anymore. Um, There's my own... (laughs) There's my own fragile masculinity coming out. Um, Yeah, so let's move on. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so moving from one pretty cool girl to another pretty cool girl... Um, we get a lot more Peggy in this episode, um, and I really liked what we got of her. I thought it was very charming and endearing that she was just so bothered this whole episode. And even Joan says, like, I've never walked up to you and not seen a look on your face that just says, I need a drink. But I kind of needed a drink watching Peggy just struggle through this day. That moment where she's just walking like me to walk this way? No, that's not going to help. I'm going to go this way. Nope. Nothing there, too. Got nothing. It was so cute. With her little curled ponytail just bouncing around behind her like the little girl she is sometimes. Oh, I know. She's just trying. I love her. She is. It's sweet. Um, I appreciated her. Did I say put this down somewhere? Um, I mean, Pete also had this, like, I feel like most all of them have this really idealized version of who Don is, even though they kind of know he's maybe sleeps around, just being faced with it. We had Pete's disillusionment. We have Roger, who doesn't pay attention. Joan, who may or may not seem to understand it, but she's just, like, play up the sex appeal kid. But Peggy now finally is faced with the fact that Don has this something on the side, and she just seemed like her whole world is turned upside down. What do you guys think? I wonder if it goes back to the time that he rejected her. Hmm. Continue. And, like, I don't necessarily think that this is true, but, like, because I don't know how sincere I think that she was in that, but, like, if she was harboring, like, a thing for Don to find out that he, like, had this other secret girlfriend, but not her as a secret girlfriend, like, when I... Not that I have, like, been in this exact scenario, but I could see myself in that scenario be like, oh, well, fine, Don. <laughs> I have some other secret girlfriend. I tried to be your secret girlfriend. <laughs> I do wonder if that plays a role in it. I didn't pick up much on that myself. I just, because in that same episode, you know, he, like, stands up for her against Pete and all the other guys. And- yeah, and even in this episode, he says, like, don't don't worry about it. Like, he is very kind to her, and I just wonder if she's mo- she's more flustered than maybe she would have been because he has been so kind to her. Mm-hmm. And then she realizes, like, how are you this nice to me but also shitty? Yeah, she's. it's like she's stuck 
between Don's public persona and one of, because there are many, um, one of his private personas, right? So she's impacted by that whole private-public dichotomy or myriad of of personalities, I guess, because not everyone's a dichotomy. Don necessarily isn't. He has several personalities or different parts that he plays in different realms. So it's, it's like there's that, that conflict where like, I need to do my job. I want to be professional. I need to do damage control and pick up all the pieces that this man is leaving in his wake. But I also know I'm expected to do that, but I'm not sure if I know how to or the best way. And maybe the most more, like what she's trying to navigate kind of that professionalism and then her own, I think, morality a little bit maybe i don't know what do we think about that i don't know i've i felt like she was almost more indebted to him almost not just for being like a kind of savior upon their first you know meeting on her very first day at the office and not just because she always thought he was different than the other guys in the office who were really gross to her um i think in a way it's kind of you know like being let in on the secret even if she stumbled upon it accidentally and having this right. idea that Joan planted in her that she has to be like a nanny or mother or whatever and take care of him and protect him. That she feels like a part of the game. It's her, like you were saying, you know, it's her job. She kind of feels like she's supposed to do it, but she also kind of wants to do it because, I mean, otherwise, if they're not part of the the conversation with the other men, even if it's off to the side, then they're just like one of the other women who just live out their boring lives in the suburbs being moms and, uh, and housewives and that kind of thing. It's exciting to be part of this like sexy underbelly of advertising. It is exciting. You can like the gleam that Joan gets in her eyes when she, I mean, she essentially, she doesn't trick Peggy, but like she doesn't need to get this secret out of her. She just wants to. It's just fun for her. She wants the dirt on Don. Yeah. I'm convinced that she just loves to make Peggy uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, because Peggy's got that wide-eyed, sweet farm girl thing to her, even though she's just from Brooklyn. But I mean, knowledge is power, and <laughs> uh, I think Joan knows it. She's the one who's juggling all these secrets for everyone and helping Peggy out. You know, telling her the things she's learned over time. I think that's I think that's part of something we've been trying to answer all this time too. What is what is Joan's thing? Why is she this person who just seems so aggressive to like uh, forward movement for uh, for women in the workplace? And other times she just seems so regressive. And you're like, I don't know what direction you're going. I think it's just that this is so different than what's expected of her. And it's her being part of the game that people, you know, she was told she wasn't supposed to be even, you know, in the audience or in the stands watching. Um, so I think, I think that's uh, probably what Peggy's getting a taste of. Cause I mean, even at her status as secretary, Joan is in that one big meeting in the morning and she's helping dictate the flow of the meeting and everything, even though she's not really a significant decision maker, she's still there. She knows what's happening behind closed doors and everyone else doesn't. Right? Like, Roger starts chairing the meeting, and then he hands it over to, to Joan, the director, and she's and the only she's woman at that table. she's in line, too, because she's, like, following up with Ken about something, and he says, like, oh, I called him last week, and she's just staring at him, and he's like, <laughs> and I will call them again today. She's because like, all she right, is that's what mom. I thought. Yep. <laughs> but, like, and I have worked as an admin in a function kind, kind of similar, and 
Um, I always called it glorified babysitting instead of mothering, <laughs> but isn't it all the same? <laughs> I mean, basically. Just one you're getting paid for and the other one you're not, essentially. Yes. Um, I really loved the realization on Peggy's side when she's just like, that's probably what I would have done anyway. So I'm like, okay, girlfriend, remember that you came to this on your own. You don't need to run to Joan to make these decisions. Like, yeah, this time you had the right idea the whole time and you paid for that validation with Dawn's secret. So hopefully we see her start to... Um, get into this stuff kind of on her own without running to Joan to to assist and to back her up. I want to see her start making some of these, uh, not Pete choices, but I want to see her start making some workplace choices without Joan. I mean, you have to give her credit, though, because when she went up to Joan, she's not like, you can, episode one, Peggy, you could just imagine her standing in the doorway going, Psst, Joan, over here. But instead she just charged in, grabs her, I'm going, uh, I have a problem. Yeah, we got to think. So she's not quite there yet, but you can already see her developing, which is fantastic. In when right before the reason that, excuse me, that, uh, hey, that's her name, grabs Joan like that and has that great line reading of the, yeah, I would have done that anyways, is because Betty and the family show up for, to go for the family portraits, and Don's unbeknownst to Peggy, gone to go meet Adam at at coffee, and they didn't have a chance to connect her or remind him, and um, Peggy is thinking that Don, not is out with, with Midge again, which is what happened the day before was the secret that, that was let in on. So I, I, I don't know. Mm, back up. So, and then we see later when the photos come out, I want to talk about Betty a bit, I guess is where, yeah, where I'm going with it. If we can Always. talk about that, that here. Um, so they get the, Don shows up late says they're about to leave. Um, Peggy has, has navigated that situation as best they could. They go for photos. The photos come back, and Betty is not is talking with my second least favorite person. Oh, that's in my notes too. Um, after Pete, France, Francine, um, about how the photos are bad and the Sally looks, looks are, you know, bad. and things like this. And we can talk about. I think she's six year old six. She's picking apart all these things that she feels wrong, and my read both times that I, I watched the episode this week is it's like I'm not convinced she's actually stressing about the bad photos I think it's another example of what we talked about in in episode two about a manifestation or a fixation that that's coming out on on those photos of the faults of them from her from her anxiety um and so I guess then the question that I had for the both of you in relation to Betty is do you think that Betty feels or senses something or knows more than than she let on she says that she you know she comments to Don about liking Peggy and you know a wife's allowed to comment on her her husband's secretary and you know is generally positive on Peggy um so I guess my question is twofold do you think that her criticisms of the photos are a manifestation of her anxiety one and second do you think Betty knows more about Don than she lets on. Like, obviously not, or probably not um, anything specifics, but I feel like she's she's sensing something and knew something was up with where where Don wasn't where he was supposed to be. I do. So, what do you think? Agree that I think that something is twigging with Betty. I don't think she has the emotional 
um, literacy to really put her finger on it or to understand it personally. But I do think she is, uh, she knows she has some reason to be suspect. And I do think that the fact that she keeps leaning into the Peggy thing points that she doesn't really know exactly what it is she's, um, she's suspicious about. I don't think she knows what direction it's heading. She clearly doesn't understand Don's tape. Um, although she is, although Peggy is like a sweet, lovely girl, like she probably was when they got together. So, right. Yeah. And, um, I am wondering, because I think Betty alludes to the fact that she's had, she had a much warmer relationship with her father than with her mother. We've seen like her, all her nitpicking and the perfectionism, even in her looks and now in Sally's looks. I wonder she got all that anxiety from her mother as well, if her mother was equally as unhappy and so was taking it out on herself and on, on Betty as a kid. And now it's just something that's been transferred on to the next generation. And that just makes me extraordinarily sad for her. Yeah, I wonder if she's picking apart the foot. Fo- well, for one, they're not good photos. So <laughs> that's one thing. Yes. Um, And I wonder if she is picking apart the photos because that is something that's more within her control and something that she is maybe allowed to pick apart and make decisions about in lieu of being able to say like don why do things feel weird like why is it weird when i come to your office why were you weird because don strikes me as the type of man who usually uh you know crosses his t's and dots his eyes when it comes to his uh runnings around the city that he doesn't want his wife to find out about mm-hmm. like he got extraordinarily freaked out when midge called the office um and if you're you know if you're taking that type of care with your affair i would think that you you know would make sure to be in the office when your wife comes so that she doesn't get these weird vibes which is exactly what happened yeah so Don, you know, with the account that they're talking about is it Liberty's executive account, which we can talk, go into deeper later, whether these men are talking about helping other men organize their life. Don is extraordinarily good at compartmentalizing his life. His family is out far out of the city in the country. You have to take a long train to commute into work. And when all that starts to bleed in, he just doesn't know what to do. And everyone feels like they don't fit in. Uh, Betty herself says she feels like a foreigner in a in a, in a completely different country when she's at his office. And they really are extraordinarily bad pictures, but they're also supposed to be a bad picture of a family. And I think it's just her seeing the fact that they're really not this cohesive, perfect family that they're supposed to be. Not to mention the fact that John Hamm managed to somehow be extraordinarily unphotogenic in these pictures, which is very, very (laughs) impressive. And I do want to give Betty some credit because at the beginning of the episode, she recognizes that Don likes awards and likes to be acknowledged, even though he wants to act like he doesn't. Like, I was kind of impressed with that amount of... um, emotional recognition from Betty um, when they get home from, you know, that awards event. Like, and he doesn't deny it either. So yeah, it's either she's just now starting to kind of get to know him or she's just now starting to trust her instincts enough to uh, verbalize some of this stuff. They were I'm both, not really sure. 
they both were quite drunk in that scene too when when she brought it up too right so their guards were kind of down they were enjoying each other's company which was really nice to see so he could be like yep i'm just pretending i can't i can't look too eager and keen like you know the younger guys are i admit it to you my wife yeah and just side note don't sleep in your makeup oh my gosh although hers was still fairly pristine (laughs) I mean, I, you know, if you're going to sleep in it, it is nice to wake up in the morning and have it still look fresh as hell. But, like, <laughs> get a fucking wet wipe or something. <laughs> still in the in the corset, though. That's That was impressive. Like, I don't oh, know how yeah. she managed to it's like in those on. jewels on top of the covers. Y'all don't know how to go to bed drunk. <laughs> <laughs> or they do it too well. No, and, like... <laughs> no the and the thing with that scene too is like when they come back from the party it's just like see their their guards are down but it's just so or it feels anyways it feels so incredibly intimate without being necessarily like overtly sexual and it, it reminded me a little bit of that that scene earlier in the season i think it was in ladies room where they're driving back from the city after having dinner with the sterlings and they're just you know being a couple in a car this was another example of an intimate moment between them but then how how genuine is it is is don really is he acting is don even don i don't know who is don draper who is don draper as uh <laughs> what does don draper want which uh, Adam uh, Whitman puts so eloquently into words. I don't know. I feel I, maybe I just want to believe that's genuine. It's a genuine moment between the two of them that they do have some real chemistry, even if they never manage to fully bridge it into something real and intimate. Because those are very often they have these interactions or lack of interactions where I'm like, why did you get married? Do you no anything about each other. I don't understand like you could just say yeah you were hot and you asked me to marry but why him why her you know other than the fact that they look really good together in formal attire <laughs> remember when the horseshoe on that award fell down <laughs> sometimes they're just a little heavy handed on the on the show just yeah. a little <laughs> I, I laughed I liked it a lot well, I mean, I guess if we're talking about Don, we should really talk about Don. Let's really talk about Don. Don't you hate it when his mouth just runs on and on? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't expect sarcasm to come from Betty Draper when you look at her. Uh, you- I know. I feel like she just wanted to bond. And Peggy was like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. And she was like, burr, 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 never mind. <laughs> Read the room wrong. My bad. <laughs> no, because okay, I mean... Don. Well, I mean, we've heard before in the past lots of criticism against January Jones, either in this role and other roles, about how she's like the ice queen, and she was like that diamond princess in X and V2. So, I mean, I understand looking at her and think, all right, so you're just a pretty mannequin. It, it's unfortunate, but that's going to happen. So, of course, when she tries to make a joke, people are like, uh, what? But um, it was it was kind of a sad moment where she really tried to reach out just then. Well, and I think we've seen that from Betty previously, where Betty makes overtures to connection, whether it's with with Mona or like with with others throughout the throughout the five episodes, and she's frequently rebuffed anytime she's not playing the role that you would necessarily expect Betty to play, and I think that that's of note, and I think it's interesting. 
that's probably why she's still such good friends with Francine, because Francine will still talk to her like a person, even though she assumes that person is just as horrible a person as she is. Yeah, and like the thing with Francine is I don't I don't think she Francine necessarily follows um theater sport rules, right? And what I mean by that is when in theater sports when you're you're doing the scene, what they teach you to do is the positive, not the negative, like version of yes and. Because when the minute you say no or stop or something, you've, you've taken over the steam and you've kind of ended it or ruined it, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if in that interaction between Betty and Francine, I don't know if Francine's always like a yes and person. She's a no me person. So like she kind of helps keep Betty in the box that she's meant to stay in. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think when, when Betty could potentially be making overture, she's like, oh no, this is fine. Oh, this is how I feel. Like, like, which again, I think in any kind of relationship, friendship, whatever, there's going to be of that that give and take. But it, in their scenes so far, I've seen Francine kind of not not bullying Peggy in in, in that sense, but like bullying the conversation mm-hmm. and kind of always able to turn around and make it about herself instead of like that active listening yeah. with what Betty's actually saying or trying to say. She right? Contra- well, she controls the whole narrative, and Betty, you know. She was she she married Don. She was like what twenty four, I think we said. She's Don't used like that. to being yeah. more of a secondary character. She's a secondary character in Don's life. She's a secondary character in Francine's uh, her interactions with Francine. She's probably a secondary character to her kids too. I imagine she was with her mom as well. So I mean, it is it is it was hard to see her try to take that moment and <laughs> just kind of be like, oh, everyone else sees me as that too. And then she says, also sad moment in that conversation, she tells Peggy, you probably know him better than I do, or you know more about him than That's I do. That's the second time in the show we've heard her make some allusion to the fact that, like, she does not know Dawn at all. Which, again, like, how did you guys get married? Seriously, I mean, he's a very attractive man. I will give you that. Yeah, and I, and I think to loop back to what we were talking about before, like I whether she has the language to understand what she thinks or what she's feeling in terms of who Don is, I think she lets on. I think she knows more than she lets on or is able to necessarily have the language for. And how I read those comments is she wants to know him better, wants to know him more because he's not there and he's not present. And, and she's wondering when he's not present, Oh, he works so hard. Like, is it just that? Or like, is it the thing she doesn't have language for the words for or doesn't want or in the, the drawer that she doesn't want to open. Right. Like, or maybe she realizes, I don't know. No, go ahead, Amy. No, I was uh, I was actually going to relate to something you said earlier, Melissa. Um, like Peggy, she has these instincts mm-hmm. that she doesn't quite have the words for. She probably still needs a hand with someone else to validate them or to put them into words for her. But they're there. She feels something, and it's real. And she's starting to understand that it is real. Yeah, that's basically what I was just going to say. That I think that maybe she has an idea that Don, like. Uh, I believe Matt said earlier has compartmentalized his life. Maybe she realizes that there there are differences in who Don is when he's in these different spaces, and she's taking the opportunities to maybe try to pry into them and see if somebody who is privy to these other parts of him is willing to, you know, slip her some information for her to chew on. I think being part of a person isn't enough for Betty. 
and she's starting to come into that. And part of Dawn isn't enough to be married to. She needs her entire husband. Yeah. Or at least not to feel that absent absence quite so strongly. Yeah. Though, I mean, it makes perfect sense that Don, who has organized and compartmentalized so many different aspects of his life, whether he's at work, he's in the city, or if he's at home, and then despite his, um, after his, like, decompression moment after he comes home, it makes perfect sense that he's someone who comes up with this private account thing, or see, and I knew, and I didn't remember this from when I watched it the first time around, but I knew he was going to call it an executive account. It is such marketing bullshit <laughs> that I hate, and I immediately knew he was going to say it, but I mean, of course he thinks of that. Of course he does, and he's got his own executive account in his uh, desk drawer right there, too. <laughs> So yeah, so something that Midge says to Midge says to Don is ask him if he gets tired of living all his his thousand or hundred lives or or whatever the the number is, and then like she calls him out on it and says, "Hey, I noticed this is like, don't you get sick of like all this compartmentalizing you do? Because trust me, as someone who's compartmentalize a lot of parts of his life in the past like that gets really tiring right and like that level of like management and control on your life is is exhausting and she calls him on it so she get tired of it but then she flips it right away and says oh but then when you come over and you open the door i see that i'll wash away and i I think she says what does she say i i like being your medicine um and how don can just turn all that other compartmentalization off and he's present with her in the moment in this kind of sanctum of her of her her apartment or or whatever and i just thought that that was interesting because that question of do you get tired of living hundreds of lives is then followed the next day by the luck running out of the horseshoe and that's when we meet adam and don kind of starts to spiral or feels more to me like he's for the first time in the show is starting to spiral and doesn't feel like he has control of all those different lives of all those different faces that he's living. So I guess I'm curious, Melissa, as someone who's watching the show for the first time. And I know previous episodes, there was that the first mention of Dick Whitman on the, the train, which I think Annie and I kind of undersold and didn't really talk about more with you. What, what did you think of the, the Adam Whitman, Dick Whitman, Don Draper reveal and and all of that stuff in this episode. You two and this show, you all play me. <laughs> Good. I was trying real hard to be all like, mm, how do I ask her what she thinks without being like, so this is important. <laughs> and I'm just out here like, do you think it's important too? Oh, I was shocked, man. <laughs> Um, and I told Matt this off pod too, but that the reveal that Don Draper in a previous life was truly Dick Whitman, like threw me for such a loop. I was, you know, feeling like I had no idea what show I'm even watching anymore. When he <laughs> reaches in his briefcase to get that money in the hotel room, I was like, is Don Draper Dick Whitman about to bust out a gun? Like, what am I watching now? And then it was money, and I'm like, all right, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> we are back on, you know, expected solid ground. But, I mean, it was it was really shocking. I 
And then, you know, looking back at it, it's not that shocking. We already know that he loves to keep these private things private and you know even his wife questions who he is and he freaked out when his girlfriend started bleeding into you know the other parts of his life so um I love that they seeded this into the show so early yeah Don and I are really just thrown for a loop here (laughs) no it's I really thought that this reveal came later on in the season but uh, no, here it is, although already. Um, I don't blame you at all for thinking that Don was going to uh, bust the cat like, in his just, gingery half brother. I do believe I because I mean the show certainly sets it up like that. Matthew Weiner, I believe, worked on Sopranos, which ended around the same time this show aired. So I mean, it's it's well well trod uh, uh, territory for for him as the writer. Plus, it was so moody and shot in a way that was really, really um, uh, suspenseful in a way where you thought, Don may actually be this desperate. They had the shot up word at his face when he was contemplating so hard about his next move at the desk and smoking his cigarette. It was like a, like a photo. I, I mean, Bro, yes. you are ice cold. Like, he was going to destroy all the evidence. Even Adam Whitman himself. You were so sure of it. He had that shot upwards with the, the door pulled out. They purposely um, obscured the view of it. I just saw a play recently where one of the characters was a photographer and he was talking about loving doing portraits upward at people. Mm. And he said not because it makes him look majestic and heroic and everything, which it does. You know, Don Draper's got that strong jawline and everything. But it also makes him look more human. And that was a very human, very vulnerable moment for him. I was like, that is really going to change the trajectory of the show, I think. If that happens. Yeah, I think it was a far more devastating thing what he actually did. Yeah, and like, Adam seems like a, a sweet, nice boy. I don't want him to be out here alone in the world. He is the complete opposite of Don. First of all, Don's all, like, dark and handsome and chiseled. And then this, like, doe-faced baby boy walks in all gingery and pasty and earnest and open. Heart completely bored on him. (laughs) Just everything he felt was on his face. And Don is all secrets and hiding and brooding. And then he had, like, the Claire Danes, like, lip tremble when Don's just like, I don't want to see you again. I'm going to start shipping Adam and Kurt. Oh, <laughs> what cute little pasty baby. And when, when, when we first meet Adam, and he's like, I knew it was you. It is you. It is you. And Don's, like, pushing him out the door. And he's like, I, like... I mean, I don't want to use the wrong term, but it's like, it's like Adam knows that like it's his brother. He knows it's Dick, and Don's like, I don't know, almost gaslighting him in a way. Where it's like, no, yes, like, that is that word is in my nose. Yeah, where it's like, no, I don't even know who you are, bro. And it's like, no, and it's just like, yeah. And then when they have, because he was trying, yeah, if he could have gotten away with making Adam believe that he wasn't dick then this all would have gone away like oh misunderstanding but no adam like knew in his deep soul no exactly 
And Don is so good at lying to literally everyone else, including himself. And only now are we starting to see like the lies start to crumble. But within like seconds in front of Adam, he's just like, nope, nope, looking away now. I'm not him. Um, you have we to gotta go. get out of here. <laughs> I'll meet you later. I'm still not him, but like, I'll totally meet you later. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Go away. Yeah, no, he couldn't, he couldn't keep the lie up in front of Adam, who genuinely knows him, probably knows more about him than anyone else in that building or in the state of New York. And yeah, because knew him before he took on this Don Draper persona. What kind of name is that? Yeah, now you have to question, like, everything, don't you? So he, yeah, so like, okay, timeline-wise, he left this home, which it wasn't his, like, he grew up with not his own mom, but somehow is this child's brother, so there's a dad somewhere in the mix. So he leaves for the military as Dick Whitman, but leaves the military as Don There's an uncle also. Seems like it. The mysteries. But, I mean, we know he served because he had those um, flashbacks in episode one. Whose purple heart is it? It says Don Draper. Draper. Wait, wait. (laughs) Did he... I don't... No. (laughs) Do you know what I'm going to (laughs) say? Go ahead. Did he steal that purple heart from someone and take on their persona? (laughs) (laughs) you guys have to say things (laughs) i am saying neither yes or no partly because i don't really remember (laughs) no i'm kind of um but i'm not in intimate detail no i just that's a good theory if y'all are not even saying anything it's complicated it's complicated. Don has no problem lying to Adam's face at, at the start, but, like, Adam is so earnest and so adamant that it's like, no, it's you. Like, it's me. Like you said, I, I grew up tall. Like, like no, recognize me. I, like, I, like, I flipping love you. You're my brother. You're important to me. We have this history. I'm alone in New York in my shitty, like, apartment hotel room, 5G, and, like, I have someone who comes from the same background as me, and it's like, you're my big brother. I'm your little brother. I know it's you. And Don's lying to his face, but then still agrees to meet him. And like in Ham's performance, there's some big old face acting there that it's like, you can see like Don's struggle. And so I guess my question for the two of you is why, why is Don who has no problem lying to, you know, at, the, at least at the start to Rachel, or, you know, I guess he's honest with Midge, but he, he, you know, lies at the office, he lies to his family, he can just take off and get away with it and bring back a dog at, like, a birthday party and, like, can float through life like nothing in Teflon. What is it about Adam that unravels Don, do you think? Just Adam knew him before he had the mask. Everyone else had, saw the exterior first, who he was all the things that they want to project onto him. But Adam was just a little boy who saw him, you know, the last time he saw him. And he was eight, 
Don was, uh, Don was probably, Dick was probably about 18, maybe a little younger, if he lied. Um, so all he had was that familial connection, you know, and it, it seemed like there was like real affection between the two of them, even though they were like half brothers only. So it's, he's seen the vulnerable side of Don. He saw whatever, you know, he mentioned how their uncle thought that he was soft, which is not something we've seen of Don before. So, you know, they probably shared a lot of things together. Everyone else, he, Don kind of reveals slowly a little bit, often to his own advantage and, and to manipulate things to his own favor. But he can't do that with Adam. Adam kind of has the whole story already. Just missed a few things, a few beats in the past few years. So I don't think it's a situation he can really control. I don't think he, when faced with this person who knows so much about him, he can control himself. I mean... I'm sure you guys know what it's like when you go back home to visit. Suddenly you're not this like somewhat autonomous adult that you are. You're also kind of just the 17 year old who used to live with your mm, parents. Yes. And I think it's that kind of similar regression where he can't build, you know, he can't maintain that, um, that well-crafted house of cards he's built up as a facade around him. Yeah, because that facade revolves around Don Draper and this person, Adam, he already knows that Don Draper is a lie. So the whole foundation is swept fr out from under him. So he has nothing to work off of when he's around Adam. He has no choice but to be not his real self, but he doesn't have any of his disguises to pull around him either. Oh, God, I just realized. What if... <laughs> Try to imagine Adam Whitman trying to, like play along and convince it and be part of the lie. <laughs> yes, this is Don Draper. Definitely not my brother. You should let him. He's such a nice boy. He would crumble in a second with that face, though. So what What are we... Okay, so we've talked about people who look up to Don and, like, Peggy a little bit. That's why she feels, you know, kind of trapped and, and, and stuck or is negotiating that situation. How... Pete kind of idolizes Don in this way and wants to surpass him and everything else. Um, I think it's really clear that Adam also looks up to and, and has a little bit of hero worship for for Dick Whitman for his older brother. He was so why like and maybe it's because he was young, but like I think it's interesting that like because of like you say Adam knew him before the mask. Don is okay with negotiating all the hero worship for the persona for the for Don Draper, but Don slash Dick, when it's someone who knows him and still looks up to him with that no, not that same amount, even more so, of hero worship and like love, like like I think. Um Don like actively rejects that and pushes it away. So is that because it, it's do we believe Don when he says I only have one direction and it's towards the future or whatever he says, like when he tells Adam he doesn't look back? Like, do we be I believe that Don thinks that. But is it because like is is there something like what's he running from? I guess is question number one. And question number two, in his own psychology of like Dick Don, whomever. Is, do we think that there's something in the past that, like, prevents him from feeling like he's worthy of Adam's worship, of Adam's love? 
I mean, the fact that he left his little brother to this seemingly horrible life they had and never looked back one time. Is that enough? Quite possibly. It does seem like he doesn't feel like he deserves that worship. Um, and hold on, I put another, I wrote a note in my personal notes, I think, that, um, like you said, running, running away, he's running from something, but running away can feel like forward moment too, mm-hmm. you know? It just strikes me that Don is just the human embodiment of the worst imposter syndrome ever. Not only is he pretending to be this amazing Don Draper person and often not feel like he's living up to it and constantly, you know, drinking and whoring his way around the city to try to escape that feeling, you know, he doesn't seem like he deserves this love of, of his little brother, like you said, Matt. And I am sorry, Siri was talking. Um, and I do think, cause it does seem like he's trying to be super cold, you know, like old yeller be all like, go on. Is that old yeller where he's, they're like, go White on, Fang. get out of here. No one needs you. White Fang. Thank you. White Fang him. That's exactly what he's doing. But at that, you can see in that hug where he just for one second, just kind of like melts into it. Mm. And you're like, this is super hard for you. And you probably think you don't deserve this adulation, this pure love someone who loved you before all the the purple heart and being a hero and you know saving the company once a week adam makes my heart hurt guys Uh, yeah (laughs) like for most of this episode when i was watching it my heart was hurting for adam now that we're talking about it my heart is hurting also for don or dick or whoever you are (laughs) And then you kind of think about it even further. His kids have that same adoration for him, too. And also, no idea Oof. who he is as a person. Oof. Oof. I'm okay. I'm, 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 oh. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> who, who had episode five on the over Jesus. under and Matt gets emotional on air? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm working a lot of this out right now as we go. <laughs> so it's kind of going to be pretty raw. Okay. Um, I think it's interesting or noteworthy that, again, obviously the themes of the episode and the theme of this podcast has been, you know, the difference in the ebb and flow between your your private accounts and your business and your public accounts and your your family accounts and households and and all of that but the horseshoe has fallen on the horse award that dad won um that's running out and don's we're seeing him struggle for the first time and look at all these people that are getting hurt don is hurting has shows emotion as well for like the some of the first time in in the series we talked about betty knowing something's up maybe not knowing exactly what is up but has felt that distance and it's it's coming to some sort of head it feels like with her peggy is getting hurt in in how having to do her job and trying to like you know do i lie don't i lie and, and that oscillation which opens her up to a somewhat playful but also you know kind of a little bit cruel relationship but you know it's actually that with joan adam's getting hurt like 
in the center of when you're you're controlling and you're managing your life, you're compartmentalizing it as much as you can. That comes to a head because eventually it always will. And not only is the way Don slash Dick, whomever, whoever he is, is living his life to this to this moment, not only is now he himself getting hurt, all these people's individuals within his sphere are also getting hurt. Which I think... It, Oh, I have no doubt yeah. that he's getting hurt too. I think he's just a constant, endless, if not just setting up a situation where he gets hurt, and it's just constant self-flagellation too, or yeah. numbing the pain. It's going to be one or the other. He does not really lie in any middle ground. Every once in a while, there's some respite. It's him just drunk enough where he's having a few laughs yeah. with his wife, and that's kind of it for him. He's constantly in this balancing act, and. In this episode, we see him just pushed to his absolute wit's end. That moment where he's got the letter and he closes the door behind him and he's in the privacy of his own office. I don't know if it's the lighting. I think a lot of it's John Hamm's performance. And you just see everything just weighing down on him. His face has completely fallen. The mask is off. He's feeling the weight of everything that he's built up to that moment. And it's exhausting. And it's one of those moments that just really felt sympathetic for him even though this is a situation he created maybe it's a situation of survival but it's still it's still been a lot even if he did put himself in this position no wonder he wants to have five girlfriends because then he can give each one you know just enough that he can feel like he's getting close to someone but they won't know everything about him like the way that he operates becomes so much more clear now that you know not where he came from because you don't oh (laughs) (laughs) continue i can't um (laughs) <laughs> not that not that we know where he came from, but just that we know that his the beginning of Don Draper is secrets and lies, and the only way to maintain that uh-huh. is to keep it up. And if you spend all your time with your cute, charming wife, you're eventually going to be comfortable enough with her to start, you know, wanting to feel a legitimate emotional connection. And when you have a secret like this, the only way to get that type of emotional connection would be to spill your secret. And that is just something that Don Draper cannot allow. No, that would definitely make him too vulnerable. And what if she rejected him? What if she didn't forgive him for whatever mistakes he's running away from or rejected the person that he is trying to hide? That's a, a very scary kind of thing. That's a very scary intimacy to, and, and a lot of people, I think, relate to trying to hide from it. So all his lies and all his um, his running around and, and, and pretending to be this person seems so malicious in just the first four episodes of the show. And I think we're starting to see that it really, you know, since like last episode, we're starting to see it's not. It's not intended to hurt anyone. It's not directed at anyone. No one's being targeted. But... It's, you know, it's, it's a mortar shell there. It's going to explode in all sorts of directions and hurt everyone within a certain radius. Yeah. I don't, there's no avoiding that. Yeah. Mm -mm. And all these pieces that he's giving up to, of himself to other people, piecemealing out and not giving them the whole, I think we see with Midge, it's no, starting to not be enough. It's definitely not enough for Betty. 
who's, you know, starting to realize that she needs more out of life than what she has. Um, but even Midge, you could see her getting a little needy. And people, you know, being needy isn't a personality trait, that a negative personality trait. It's you're needy because you need something, and Dawn's not giving it to her, even though she acts like she's super cool, independent, swinging lady of the 60s. Yeah, and even going back to what Rachel Mencken, like the piece that he was willing to give her on right off the bat wasn't enough for her. And so that, you know, whole relationship mm-hmm. was just dead in the water. Yeah, I think the part that he... I'm trying to think about, like... It's a f- not fully formed idea yet, but it's just the different pieces that he does choose and, and what piece he gives to whom and how it kind of fills that personal need of theirs. Mm-hmm. I don't know. going to have to think about this. Because, you know, we see the different kind of people he is with, with each of these women and with his, you know, his coworkers and everything. Well, and he just wasn't willing to, he didn't have any real enough pieces to give to Adam, and that's why Adam had to leave forever. I think Adam would have accepted him, too. Yeah, like, I if, if you would have just told the truth to Adam about why you do this, like, I find it hard to believe that Adam would have been like, well, fuck off then. Like, I think that he would have been like, let's figure out how to merge these two things together so that we can have what we need from each other, which is a brotherly relationship. I would suggest that what Adam represents and the way Don has built and constructed his life with all the different compartments there, there's none left for Adam because Adam is a reminder of whatever Don feels like he's he's running from or whatever kind of unhappiness or or whatever mm-hmm. whatever doesn't feel like worthy of or, or a circumstance it's like when dick whitman became don draper whatever the circumstances of that were he buried something inside and yeah he's compartmentalizing because it's it's easier to give lots of people different part aspects of yourself um and you can kind of control that and dole that out and give them what you think they need or the part of the the part of yourself that you're okay letting the show them it's one thing to do that but then there's kind of like your your rosetta stone inside that 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 he's buried and i think that that adam is is tied up with that so i don't know if even if he wanted to subconsciously, if, if Don would be able to find a third way or have a, an Adam compartment, if you will, where he has a Betty compartment and a Midge compartment and a work compartment and a compartment he tried to show Rachel. I don't, I don't know if Don's capable of that because Adam's so tied up with whatever that kind of Rosetta Stone is that, that Don's kind of buried and, and left for dead. Like, Adam says that, like, I thought, I thought you died. I, I saw you on the train. I, like, you know, you told us you died, but I thought I saw you, blah, 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 blah. And, like, I think Don considers Dick Whitman dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's mourned him and Adam hasn't. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, I'm just trying to, like, imagine what kind of situation it would be if he kept Adam in his life. And it's brought maybe the kind of uh, thinking he was doing when he was, you know, hunched over on his desk smoking a million cigarettes. Because... Mm-hmm. You couldn't just keep disappearing off to see Adam. No. Because, I mean, Betty and, and now Peggy are already sus- suspect enough about his disappearances and who he's spending it with. Then there's Midge to contend with, who also is finding herself not have you know getting enough out of this relationship anymore. It's not enough uh, to 
the sort of intimacy that they've developed over time. And then you can't really have uh, Adam there with um, with Betty because she's been desperate to find out more about uh, Don's past, whether that you say it was his brother or someone else. Be like, oh, tell me everything. And he's not a great liar, I'm going to guess, Adam. The titular 5G, or one of the titular 5Gs. So Don gives Adam $5,000 in go away, start a new life, I did money. Right, like, hey, you want to you want to worship me, bud? You you want to have a life like mine? Do what I did, and and you know, start over. Right, leave whatever our our commonality is behind. So I I googled the old uh, U.S. currency inflation calculator, and according to the one that I found, five thousand dollars, five thousand nineteen sixty dollars equals forty three thousand three hundred and thirty seven twenty nineteen dollars. So that's a, a pretty big chunk of change to have in your desk to then give someone as as start over money. So uh, yeah, that's lake house money. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. how long has he been stashing that up for? And also why? Why? Well, because he doesn't have a bank that has a executive private account. Executive. Sorry, Eddie is my minute. Uh. Yeah, I thought that was worth mentioning. It's a lot of money. That's more than uh, Pete Campbell makes in one year. Indeed, it is. Again, this is maybe still be me projecting onto Don. Onto Don. I'd like to think he is hoping for better for Adam, and that not only is it protecting himself because of the complications Adam would present, but also he doesn't corrupt Adam as well with his own bullshit. Yeah, he's like, look, you have a chance that I don't, or you have the same chance that I did. Go, go, make something of yourself, like I did, like. Um, kill the boy <laughs> right like kill kill the boy that you were become become the man you want to be like yeah. which 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 is interesting because when you look at that in context of like other things like even game of thrones or whatever song of ice fire which like where i pulled that from that's viewed as a thing that the the hero does and here it's I'm less convinced that it's it's heroic advice that that Dot is giving Adam, but I think that's what he's telling him to do. Why do you say less heroic? Why am I saying it's less heroic? Um, because it involves an act. The way I'm projecting or presupposing that Dick slash Don has done it is because Don's like I only move in one direction and he doesn't look back, and I think. By that level of compartmentalization and by that kind of unwillingness to kind of rectify, acknowledge, mourn, whatever was was in that past, how can your hero or even anti-hero or, or whatever, how can they be the fully kind of, not fully realized, but can be the truest version of themselves if there's a big part of themselves that they're they're not looking at or not not willing to to look at or willing to acknowledge right whereas when you look in kind of in other media i think when that advice is given it it's kind of you acknowledge your past and that and that's the act of like you know killing it or or, or sacrifice right you're you're sacrificing that to be the adults, or, or in the case of Jon Snow and with Aegon's advice, or Aemon's advice to him. 
I don't, I don't even know if it's like a positive thing now that I think about it in, in the context of like Game of Thrones either. Cause I think John, now we're pivoting to a Game of Thrones podcast. Um, but I think when John tries to do that, that's what ends up leading to his untimely demise. So maybe it's not good advice anywhere, right? Because it's denying a part of yourself and who you are. And, and that, that part, that, that starkish compassion, um, or whatever it is in, in Don's case, or it would be in Adam's case, that, that fire that Adam carries inside, I think is one of his strengths and Don's telling him to run away from that. And then that, that, that thing, that relationship you want with me is not okay. And it'll bring you down. Right. It's Yeah. I don't know. I think there's some ideas there. I haven't quite crystallized them yet, so I apologize. But we've all seen Rocket Man, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't. Oh, you are in for a treat, my friend. There's a part of Rocket Man where the pat, like, because it's it's a very if you, listener you haven't seen it, um, it's a very non, it's a very kind of fantasy musical epic. It's 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 heightened and it's surreal. And there's this this moment of future and past kind of intertwining in this what i felt was a gut punch representation and i think the need and the power of of that moment is what don is suggesting adam denying what don's denying himself Mm -hmm. and i don't think that sets you up for success i believe in in the moment you're talking of it's you know this older person who is basically forgiving his past child of being a child and dealing with a situation, a less than ideal situation as best he could. And then yeah, that's right? definitely yeah. not something Don has ever done. Uh, no, what I wanted to ask you guys is, do we agree that it, with Don, when he says that he's moving forward? Moving forward, I think implies a level of health and positive, healthy decision-making. I I fully believe that Don is running, but it's not like he has worked through whatever he needs to work through, um, you know, integrated those things into himself and is truly moving forward in a positive direction. What he's doing is, like we've said multiple times, compartmentalizing and running, which sure, that might be running to new things that you haven't done before and getting further and further away from where you were, but I mean, how do you define forward mm-hmm. momentum? Yeah, he may be running forward, but it seems like everything else is keeping pace with him too. Or he's just carrying it all on his shoulders. It's going to be one of the two. I'm not sure which metaphor I want to go with yet. <laughs> yeah, forward motion's a funny thing, right? Because I have Reliant K song lyrics in my head now, but it, it's it's forward motion's harder than it sounds, right? And you can you can advance because time passes and, and things move around you. But, like, are you actually getting ahead? I don't know. I don't think Don is. I'm, like, going to be super nerdy because it just occurred to me this very second. It makes me think of, um, just because I finished reading The Other Einstein by Marie Benedict, I've got Einstein in the brain. It's kind of like a theory of relativity. The faster you go, the slower time is going. It's like, oh, man. If anything has described Don Draper, it might be that. I think we did it. So until next time, friends, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Pop Artery 
uh, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y, or on my other podcast, a Jane Austen podcast uh, and general book club uh, called The Daily Nightly. Feel free to check it out. Okay. You can find me on Twitter at at MattyHugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H, where I refuse to commit to a single brand and probably tweet about too many very things. But that's okay, because hashtag this is me. You can find me on Twitter at MellowYellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow, and as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast, our most recent episode we recorded at the time of this recording is a review, um, a not-so-favorable review of It Chapter 2, if you're into that. So you can find me over there. (laughs) And if you want to find us together, we are at StillGreatPod on Twitter. And please rate and review the show and tune in next time when we are discussing Season 1, Episode 6, Babylon. Bye, guys. Later days. Well, I mean, Avril Lavigne wrote that song in 2002 because she saw the spec script for Mad Men, and that's what that's what Complicated is about, right? It's actually about Don Draper. Um...